another episode of the Fearless Training Raw Knowledge Podcast with myself, as always, Alex Connor. Thank you for joining me today. And just a quick side note before we start, the podcast is now available across all audio listenable platforms. So you will find us now on Google Play, Spotify, iTunes, etc. And I just want to say a quick thank you, as always, to the positive feedback that we've been getting. We're definitely growing a small, little, diverse audience, and it's great to hear that people are enjoying the conversations and taking something positive out of it. Now, my guest today is Dan Jolly, and a little bit about him is he's currently completing a PhD in educational psychology at Curtin University, where he looks at the knowledge and critical thinking ability of exercise professionals. Now, I participated in a questionnaire that Dan sent out. Now, don't quote me. It was over a year ago. It was a while ago now. And he recently emailed back with his findings, which alluded me to how to look at what he was currently doing. And I liked what I saw. And I reached out and said, hey, look, would you like to do a podcast and share some knowledge? Because we do share a passion for increasing the industry standard. And you know, educating personal trainers and perhaps dispelling some myths and instilling within them a better protocols, better systems and, and better processes to be more successful in the industry, but also to be a better practitioner. So we're getting to some really interesting notions and some recommendations as well for people who are looking to get in the industry and also people in the industry teaching as well. Uh, Dan teaches uh, Certificate 3 and 4 in fitness at TAFE uh, in college in Western Australia. He also possesses a Master of Science in Exercise Physiology and a Bachelor of Science in Exercise Science. He's worked in the fitness industry for over 20 years, so he's got a multitude of experience, which we definitely delve into in this episode. Firstly, as a personal trainer, and then as a strength and conditioning coach in the WAFL, Australian Football Competition, and in the WBBL with the Perth Scorchers. Now, we look at the protocols within the strength-based approaches to which he practiced when he was working with athletes and also we talk about how he approaches his teaching as well so there's a lot of little golden nuggets in here for those in the industry perhaps those who are thinking about getting and becoming a personal trainer or a strength coach and for those who are already in the industry will probably be able to relate and take some well-needed truths away from this as well now without further ado guys Enjoy this conversation with Dan Jolly. All right, Dan, welcome to the Fearless Training Raw Knowledge Podcast. Thank you for your time and thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Alex. Hey, absolutely my pleasure. So as always, uh, let's start off with a bit of an introduction about yourself. Tell us who you are, what you do, what you're passionate about, and uh, everything in between. Sure, no problem. Well, um, I uh, currently I teach uh, fitness students, so I teach Cert 3 and 4 in fitness mm -hmm. on the side, while I've um, been completing a PhD in educational psychology. Um, that's looking at um, the knowledge and sources of information of personal trainers. Mm -hmm. um, before that, I worked in industry for a long time as a personal trainer and worked in sport and um, did my previous degrees in exercise physiology. 
good man good man and uh, where have your studies taken you uh, up to now where yeah um, well, I've, I've been in Perth the, the whole time, but um, if, if that's what you mean, location. Oh, like in terms of uh, more more the science side of things, not just location-wise. Like where is where? No, no, you're right. <laughs> British terminology. Where are you mainly wanting to go with it now, and and what sort of I guess um, areas do you want to branch out into, if any? Gotcha. Okay, um, mate. That's a really interesting question because uh, I don't have much of a plan um, and didn't have a plan when doing the PhD, other than I had a question about the fitness industry that no one had answered. So I thought I'd answer it. So um, whether it uh, takes me into further study or you know different work or anything like that, I, I really don't know. It's been it's been really fun to find out the answers to these questions and come up with more questions um, and. I'm, I'm enjoying trying to sort of spread the word and um, you know, raise, um, you know, raise these issues in the fitness industry, but where it takes me, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, and I guess that's part of the excitement though, really, isn't it? Because there's, there will always be more questions and that is the beauty of science and, and any industry or anything you're passionate about. What are some of these specific questions that you wanted the answers to? And can you share some of the findings so far with us? Uh, yeah, I absolutely can. Um, what really sort of got me thinking about it was, you know, some of my colleagues in industry and um, uh, whether it be teaching or whether in PT were maybe not as curious as me. Um, so, you know, when challenged with new information or something that might contradict, you know, a sort of sincerely held or long held belief, they would tend to sort of push it away or ignore it rather than ask a question and go, oh, I wonder why, or I wonder if I've got something wrong. So, um, so that got me curious because I've always, I've wanted to be right. You know, even if I'm wrong, it means I'm, you know, once I find out I'm wrong, I'm closer to being right. So, it's uh, a good way of looking yeah. at it. Yeah. So, you know, being wrong isn't a, isn't a bad thing as long as you correct it. So, sure. um, I'm really curious about why some people didn't want to correct it, you know, and were, were happy to sort of push that stuff away. So, um, so I yeah, started doing a bit of reading and um, uh, my, some of my undergrad was in psychology as well. So um, sort of knew enough to start asking the right questions and then finding a supervisor to sort of help me out with it and take it further. But the main thing for me was um, looking at misconceptions in fitness. So what are the things that we think we know and we think we've known for a long time that are really wrong um, and things that will no matter you know, how much extra information we've been exposed to, we still believe this thing that might be incorrect. Mm -hmm. um, and everybody has it. Everybody has these things in different different areas. And usually we're not aware of it because that's why it's a misconception. But um, yeah, I wanted to find out where they came from and um, what we could do, you know, if there was anything we could do to maybe correct those. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I 100% I, I, I understand where you're coming from. And I think this is going to be, now we're going to, really unpack some interesting um, line of questions and, and I guess information because there is so many misconceptions out there and as we've talked about off camera this is something that I'm really passionate about because I think not just why these misconceptions exist but also again what you said right there is why do we continue to believe them why do we not ask a better question and that kind of comes from having a, a scientific um, or a pragmatic approach in terms of you know Let's go, well, hang on a minute. 
let's ask a better question. Like the questions that I think we are ingrained to ask is what's the best this or what's the best thing going to get me for that, which is a very binary linear approach where asking maybe or learning to learn like we learn to learn or asking a better question of what maybe are some things I can do to move in this direction rather than what's the best, because as we know, it's not just one thing. So to dive a little bit deeper, what are some of the biggest misconceptions you found from, again, your, your studies, but also working in the industry hands-on and what, what have you done to try and slay, if I can use that word, the misconceptions or rectify the misconception? Okay, no problem. Um, you actually raised something really interesting in your question there, which is often um, like that really binary approach is what I guess we, we start off with. Um, when you're, when you're really fresh and new in a, in a field of knowledge, whatever that field is. So, um, usually the more, the more you learn and the more qualifications you get, the more sort of nuanced you are and the more your answer becomes a bit more gray rather than black and white. So, uh, and that's something that I try and teach my students too, is, you know, um, their answer to a lot of questions should be, it depends. And then like, what does it depend on? And then we go through all the variables and right, here's what, here's what might change it. And here's what might change this. But most of the time for most people, they're going to say this thing. Um, yeah, but they need to appreciate that. That's not always the case. Um, just to, sorry, just to interject, cause I want to, I really want to ask you, uh, just to, to, to delve off that hook. See, I, that is my answer a lot of the time to people. And this is the paradox. I feel bad, but I tell them, look, I can't give you a one word answer. I'll be doing you and myself a disservice. But at the same time, they might get that one word answer from someone else, think they're better or that's great. But then they, once they go down the rabbit hole, they're actually further away from their goals where the person who gave them the right answer looked like the person who was perhaps not as intelligent because they didn't give them the one word answer. Just quickly is what is your strategies for getting around that? How do you personally like to approach that scenario? Because I'm sure like you said, you're a lot, right? Yeah, absolutely. But I think I think that ties in well with your previous question anyway, that um, usually it's about teaching complexity. So um, one of the, you know, the research shows us that one of the ways to correct misconceptions is by increasing an awareness of the complexity of a topic. So the more you, you know, the more you learn about it, like I said, the more you realise, oh, there's all these other factors which contribute. Um, and when we were identifying the misconceptions that we were going to survey people about and that we were going to try and correct, um, most of them ended up being an oversimplification of a correct answer. So, um, you know, you might have gleaned enough information to get that far, but not far enough to really understand the other factors and the other influences. And then over time, maybe your, you know, your understanding of what you learned might have regressed a bit and you're left with this little misconception, this little bit of oversimplified information which you're then spreading to clients. So um, when I'm saying I don't know, usually I'm explaining why I don't know. Um, And if I'm working with the client, then I'm building the appreciation in the client of what what a complex situation it is. So I'm saying don't know because of X, Y, Z, or I don't know, but it might be this and maybe here's who here's who can tell you more if mm. not me mm. yeah and no, I, I like that i like that um honest approach as well which i think is important because it's easy i think as well when you get to a certain point in your career to have a stab now 
it's not always a bad idea sometimes to recommend, but as a practitioner, it's not a good idea to work out of one scope or prescribe or diagnose something that we are not able to do purely based from, from a, from a health and safety standpoint. But I think, like you said, deconstructing it and then saying, well, look, I, I don't know. Here's why sometimes then, like you said, being wrong can get you closer to being right. Because if you understand, well, it's like Edison, right? It was like, he found so many ways not to make a light bulb. And then he found out how to make the light bulb. So it depends how you frame it in, in that respect. Um, how, how do you then with, with your, your students that you teach as well, how do you sort of progress that? So like you said, you're teaching them about, if I'm correct, what you said, the complexity of the, you know, the, the scenarios, et cetera. Is this something yeah. that you do, I imagine, based on your surroundings in a practical mm -hmm. and a theoretic, uh, theoretical manner? So like a theory-based and then more of a practical-based environment? Is that sort of what you do? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Um, when I was in New Zealand, I studied at a, an institution which I think is equivalent to TAFE. And it was called um, uh, the Institute of Sport. Uh, and recreation and I was quite fortunate because I got to do 50% theory and 50% practical and I think one of the and I'd love your opinion on this problems with the industry is that there's not enough of each but sometimes especially in university or um, tertiary level there's a lot of um, theory which is the case in not just our industry but many but there's not enough really hands-on experience and even then it takes time. Like you can't just go, well, I've kind of done a bicep curl now, or I've, you know, I've, I've taught someone to run around and, and do some high intensity interval training. And now I know it. It's like, we have to spend a bit of time in there. So what strategies do you think we could put in place from, in your opinion, your experience to kind of raise that standard or perhaps produce better quality personal trainers, not only within Australia, but just, you know, from, from the get go in, in learning facilities around the world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's it's complex and it's a really long game because it's something that um, you're talking about like an institutional change in the education system effectively. So um, because when in Australia, at least we're really um, we're restricted by the level of the qualification we teach and the, um, you know, the time frame we have and the, um, you know, the amount of hands on contact is going to depend on what we can charge and funding and all those sorts of things. So um, a three and four is going to be a three and four for a really long time. Yeah. Um, there's not much to do about that. And a degree, I think degrees are getting better. They sound a lot more hands-on from when I did mine 20 years ago. Um, but, you know, they might still be quite theoretical. Um, but I'm trying to um, improve an appreciation of, of extra qualifications and higher standards of qualification. So if somebody has a Cert 4, that's not the end of the journey. Um, the way I tell my students is that's a beginning. Um, and one of the things we found out from our, from our research is that, and other research prior to mine, this isn't a new finding, but time in the industry doesn't equate to better knowledge. Um, so that tells us that people who are going to PD and you know, doing that sort of thing as part of their career probably aren't getting what they, what they need to from that. So um, yes, yeah, self-directed PD isn't, isn't the answer. Um, but we do know that there's that a really good way to correct misconceptions is just higher levels of qualification and it even, it doesn't matter what level. So what we found, um, you know, I surveyed a group of, uh, the general public and 
those people who had higher levels of qualification in any field possessed fewer misconceptions in fitness and nutrition just because they were aware of what they didn't know. So they've been exposed to higher levels of learning in one field and they can identify maybe their lack of learning in another field. Um, so appreciating higher levels of qualification and seeking those. So if you've done a cert four, if you have the means do a diploma um, or go and do a degree, or if you've done your degree, um, you know, have a look at an honors or a master's or, you know, something like that, or go to a doctorate if you find something you're passionate about and, um, and that's going to help. But like, like I said, that's a, that's a really long game. Um, and improving, I think a trainer's appreciation of those qualifications, you know, so understanding that, well, if this person's achieved this qualification at that point, they were assessed at a really high standard and they were competent at that standard. What they do after that is up to them, but you know, that's, that's maybe more than what, you know, what another trainer might have achieved. And, mm. and that probably counts for something. Sure. Yeah. So like the continual learning aspect of it, um, aside yeah. from, you said, personal development, because again, that's, that's very ambiguous <laughs> what that can be, I guess. So at least the continual learning pattern there, like you said, you, it's, it's a byproduct, isn't it? Cause when you, like you said, when you learn at a certain level, and you are exposing yourself to that knowledge and that experience automatically your level of thinking and problem solving and communication and language etc it all kind of upskills in, in alignment with that as well and i think yeah. you're right it's not just in our industry it's, it's kind of across so if you're really passionate about what you do it shouldn't be something where you go well i've, I've got my minimum and now i'll just you know flow through it's like nah, we, we should always be continually learning. And if, and if you're passionate, as I said, like you just will generally gravitate towards, it. I know what I do and I am, and I'm always like, what's my, what's the next thing I want to do? What do I want to add on to it? But what's specific? And sometimes it's like you said, finding something you're really passionate about or that niche and then following that line. Um, and as I put it now, instead of being a generalist, be a specialist because, yep. There's so there is there's so many elements that we can dive into now, and we see it a lot. I think I'll use the example in the more surgical industry side of things, uh, medical industry, and now we have eye surgeons, and sometimes we have like you know someone who's specific about the pupil. It's like getting really really in the details where you know we, we go back 10, 20, 30 years, and it was a you know a surgeon did a lot of things. Um, but it, but it's great now to see them focusing on those 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 small parts as well. Absolutely. Um, to to segue out of that and, and into the next question, do you do a lot of uh, hands-on work still yourself? Do you do any personal training, or is it more teaching your students the practical side of things? Um, yeah, it's it's mostly teaching. Um, and uh, but until very recently, I was I was working as a strength and conditioning coach. Um, which is really, really time intensive and you, you're very hands-on with that. Um, I, um, yeah, not doing that at the moment. So I, I am seeing a few clients now just on the side and um, just to, yeah, just to stay in the game and, and have some fun working one-on-one, -on -one, you know, instead of having 50 or 60 people to deal with when I'm a coach now, I've got one, you know, I can spend an hour and a half with one person and, you know, um, sort of be a little bit more detailed in my, in my exercise prescription. So, yeah, I do really enjoy that, but um, yeah, I probably enjoy it more because I don't do that much of it. Mm. Yeah, it's finding that balance, isn't it? Because 
I think you can be overwhelmed if you've got too many numbers. But at the same time, if you really love what you do, I speak to a lot of advanced coaches and they always say, man, you know, you just can't be the one-on-one. Like if you, if you love what you do, it's great. Cause like you said, you can be in there, you can be intensive, you can be hands-on, you can be specific and you can really sort of help people um, nut out, you know, a, a better path if you like. So with all your experience as a strength and conditioning coach, were you, did you mainly have like sports specific athletes uh, or were they more physique athletes, et cetera? Did you have a bit of a, of a mix? Um, so what's all okay. those? Yeah, well, I've I've never done physique work at all, um, so that's um, yeah, that's something that is a you know completely different thing, um, and I I see that is that's a real trend in the industry that in the last sort of five or ten years that's that's really blown up. Um, oh, yeah. So it's been interesting to watch that from from the outside. Um, but uh, yeah, so my work um, previously has been with teams. Um, so I've um, I've done some volunteer work in American football. Um, and I've done some work in, um, in in Australian football here in Perth, and spent a bit of time with Perth Scorchers in cricket. So, um, yeah. So most of my work has been uh, sports related. Mm-hmm. That's great. So, in terms of working with more of the teams and and the strength and conditioning side of things, what are some of the, I guess, main protocols or the most effective protocols that you found to be more advantageous from a practical standpoint rather than just a theory standpoint so for example um to contextualize this and i'm asking this from us from the standpoint of the strength coaches and the strength and conditioning coaches listening who are probably thinking or are coaching again strength-based athletes in teams or our strength and conditioning coaches um sometimes when we study Again, misconceptions, we say, hey, you do X, Y, and Z. But when we actually get in there and work with a team, we find, well, hang on a minute. It's not quite right. Maybe we're not programming exactly X, Y, and Z. We're programming more of X, more than Y, more than Z. Would you say that the, the, the science has changed much, really? Or is it pretty much, again, the basics have stood true and a lot of the minutiae and the misconceptions are exactly that and again people should go back to more of the basic strength and conditioning protocols rather than overcomplicating things okay yeah gee there's a lot to talk about there um i think yeah, sorry, uh, bam. <laughs> no, no, you're right. I think some of the, yes well some of the misconceptions in sports specifically are more about um not uh, might be discussions you have with with the with the skills coaches you know so um you know the skills coaches want as much time as possible doing skills so you know, the head coach of a footy team will say, well, can we get our conditioning out of our running? Or sorry, can we get our conditioning out of our skills training when we have footies in hand and doing things like that? And, you know, you might spend quite a while explaining that, well, no, you can't really, or not to the same extent because of the intensity you're running at and the duration of the running and the intervals and, and things like that. But, you know, that's something that pops up all the time, particularly at the lower lower levels. It's... Um, it's, it's probably still a discussion that happens every few years at most AFL clubs, I'd imagine, too. But, um, yeah, that's a, that's a really common one. Um, and so, again, improving an awareness of what an S&C coach com- does compared to, um, you know, what the, what the skills guys do is, is helpful there. Um, what I found something that's really changed in the last few years is the idea of load management has become much more of an issue than what it was a few years ago. So looking at not just... Um, 
not just sort of are we running enough and are we doing weights enough and are we getting stronger, but add it all up. So add all our on-feet work, add all our um, extra conditioning and all our strength work and all that sort of stuff and how much are we asking the players to do and what toll is that taking on them. Um, and it's, you know, monitoring that is something that became more and more a part of my role and even with some of my um, one-on-one uh, people at the moment, I, I monitor their loads too because one of the big predictors of injury that's been identified in the last few years is not doing enough. So, you know, uh, start them training, build them up gradually. So, you know, don't spike their loads too quickly or they'll get hurt and um, do enough in the preseason so that when they have those really big game days, they don't get hurt. So those are the really two big things that have come out of the, the research in the last few years. And the research has come out of what's been practiced sort of hands-on with these teams. Um, and sort of monitoring that overall load and the way the players perceive that load is um, is really important now. Okay. So are we talking like obviously total volume and then yep. increasing intensity over time, like having more like of an accumulation phase and then more intensification, but I guess, like you said, managing it to a point where the, the athlete is not uh, overreaching um, so they That's can right. recover for their you know, obviously more skill acquisition sessions and the cardiovascular base sessions, et cetera. Um, yeah. at, at, at the level that you've, you've coached um, these athletes at, what are the general or what are, what are some of the example routines uh, that you would, would give, um, say, a rugby player or, or a, an, an NFL, I believe, is it, player? Yep. Yep. Um, how many strength and conditioning sessions per week? Like what can you kind of build us a picture of what their program would look like or how you have programmed it for, and I know this is, again, there's probably a lot of phases, yep. but you can build as a bit of an example mm. of how you generally approach that. Absolutely. Yeah. And look, this is something that's changed in my, with experience too. And um, I'm spending more time thinking about the individual's needs rather than the sports needs. Um, or that's, that's more of a 50-50 proposition now, whereas I might have been really worried about what the sport needed um, previously. And if you have a look at something like American football, you think, gee, they're big and they're powerful and you know, they have lots of rest, but gee, they need to hit hard. And you know, so you think about their, their power needs and their strength needs and their size needs. But so you want to apply all this load and you want them squatting heavy and you want them doing um, you know, maybe variations of Olympic lifts or something like that. But if they can't move well, you can't do that. So, you know, if they can't squat safely, if they can't, um, yeah, if they can't control their body weight um, or if they're injured and you need to manage that injury, then, then they can't do any of those things anyway. So um, my approach at the moment with some of the, some of the guys I'm working with is um, maybe only in the gym two, three days a week, um, depending on what they started with. Um, so if they weren't doing anything at all, it might be twice. If they, if they were training two or three times in the off-season, it might go up to four in the pre-season with, mm -hmm. with, with their gym. But if they've got kids, I might only make it two, you know, because they're getting less sleep and all those sorts of issues. So um, they all need to lift heavy in that case and they all need to do some sort of explosive work. But what I program is, is going to depend so much from person to person um, before I even start looking at the sport or the position that they play or... Or anything like that so um, yeah it's hard to get too specific to be honest now that that's understandable so it's it's very individualized to each of the 
players or the athletes in the team. And again, like taking them through like a general physical preparedness to a degree to get them before we go like against sports specific movements. So I guess you've always got, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the way I would interpret it is like, you've got a bit of a, a map if you like, and you've got, you know, point A, point B and each player, you've got to try and navigate them and get to that point. But as we know, it's not a straight line because they've got families, they've got injuries. Some players, like you said, they can't move in a squat, but then some players might be really strong on a bench press. And I guess that's what makes it fun as a, as a coach because you, it's like, oh, cool. It's not just this and this and this and that gets a bit boring. Um, let's, let's talk about cause something. And again, this is something I'm interested in because I'm just mm-hmm. like to talk about this sort of stuff, I guess, and, and learn more about how other strength coaches program. How do you manage that in terms of a, a, a time and also uh, a logistic aspect of if you've got, say, I don't know, 30 or 20, do you, do, you ma- do you manage all the players? Do you have other strength coaches within these teams? And are you yep. delivering this programming um, now via electronic forms? And if so, what do you, yep. do you use Excel spreadsheets, that sort of thing? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Well, so so now I'm only doing one-on-one stuff, and I'm working with half a dozen people. So basically, and I've I've got a I've got a pretty well-equipped gym at home, so people come come and see me, and I spend an hour or two hours with them, and I really I really take my, my time, and we just program there, there and then, and I might see them one, once a month, you know, to do some testing and update their programs. So yeah. that's really intensive and one-on-one, and that's something that I love doing, and you know, it's not. It's not something I'm I'm charging them for. I'm just help, helping out these guys because it's fun and you know and and that's my hobby and you know teaching and, and study is is my day job. Um, but I've been in the other situation working for you know semi professional um, AFL clubs where we have fifty guys on, on our list. Um, so we can't do that. You know, and it would be me and a rehab coach and a, and a strength coach. So you just can't program individually. For that number of guys, no. and not everyone's going to, um, you know, and not everyone's going to turn up to training every every session. They turn up a lot, but not all the time. So yeah. in that case, it's more of you design your template. Right, here's what the session is for this month, or the here's what the two or three sessions are for this month. And then when the players get into the gym, you make your adjustments, and you're right. So I know you can't do this, and I know you need to use this variation or. Um, you know, I know you can't squat, so we're just going to do this with you, or we're going to use a box with you, or you're going to do a leg press, or you're going to use a band, or you know. So you end up with maybe eight or ten different variations to suit those guys, um, and then they they remember what their variations are, or you write those down for them and give them a modified version. So I've been at both extremes of being able to spend hours on one person, and then having fifty guys and half an hour to knock a program up. And then you know you adjust it as you go. Mm. Um, so yeah, I know I prefer the one-on-one time, but um, yeah, it doesn't always happen. For sure, and that 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 makes sense. But that that is interesting, um, actually. And just to kind of understand the dynamics behind that, would you say yeah. that's the difference between? say the most elite sport teams like for example Manchester United everyone knows Man United you know one of the biggest if not the most popular sports in the world football soccer yep. and I, I something that I've looked at and I find interesting is um, obviously the resources they have for rehabilitation you know like they're, they're the first on the cryogenic therapy and all this that and the other so apart from obviously the facilities 
Do you think mm-hmm. the difference and the standard in coaching is more about the, the hands-on or they would have more, or the, again, not just Man United, but the, best, the teams with the best money, do they just have more strength coaches who can be more individualistic or do you think that they have or they're using different strategies? Like, I guess to put it into a question specifically, what is the cutting edge of strength and conditioning performance now for sports-specific athletes? Yeah, okay. Well, um, I don't know if I'm the best person to answer. Um, in your opinion, cutting edge necessarily. Sorry? In, in your experience, though, I guess. From, right, yeah. From, yeah, from your standpoint. Yeah. Okay, well, look, I can give you a really good example um, in that, um, you know, in the time I spent at the Scorchers, for example, like load management was a real a really big issue, and particularly with fast bowlers. You know, they, they track their bowling loads pretty carefully about how much they're bowling in sessions and how much they're bowling in games and, you know, avoiding those spikes in load that we talked about earlier. Um, they treat fast bowling the way... I would treat, you know, kilometres somebody's run or, you know, reps and, you know, weight they've lifted and things like that. So they, you know, they've got, they've got software that handles that and the players have an app on their phone and they get up each morning and they, they um, answer a few quick wellness questions and then they um, put in what the training was from, from the day before and how hard they rated each session. So just the old, um, you know, session RPE times, times time, you know, how long the session was. Um, and they can use that and manipulate, you know, that information as much as they need to. Um, and, you know, they've got a you know, piece of software that, um, well, Cricket Australia has a piece of software that where every under 17 and up player in the country enters their information into that app and Cricket Australia sees everything and each of the states see their, their contracted players and, um, and all that information is shared and used to modify training if they need to. Um, go down a level into sort of semi-professional stuff. Um, we're using the same system but we're using a, a clipboard and, and some paper and we're getting those scores manually rather than using a phone app. Um, and then plugging it into an Excel spreadsheet rather than using the software. Um, so I don't, I don't think there's any difference in how you apply that, um, you know, that system, for example. And I don't think there's any difference in how you might program necessarily either. I think the, if you go to Man U, they might they might complain about not having enough time as well. But yeah, what they consider enough time is going to be really different because what they want to do is is you know again next level. So I don't think any SD coach feels they've got enough time. You just when when you have more time, you find more things to do and yeah. better ways of using that information. So yeah, so it's always hard. Yeah, no, that, that that's true. It's, it's a good point you make. I guess, like you said, you always it's like the whatever income you earn, you you live to your means, right? Or you live to your resources. And if you've got less, you do more with it. And if you've got more, but then you do more and you earn more, you spend more, and and, and kind of that that's way right. around things. But that's I right. guess it is more like you said, it's more the resources, but the basics and the science. I, I don't think again has changed. I mean, there's always studies coming out, but again, until we can actually get enough evidence or conclusive evidence, which usually takes years and years and years to draw those and go out, we definitely know this works. We're not going to be seeing any major changes, I guess, any time. What are... um, I guess the one thing... Sorry, go on. Oh, sorry, mate. I was just going to say, I guess the one thing that might happen in professional sport is, as you say, it might take decades to get conclusive evidence about something, whereas they, they wouldn't wait. So they might do their own research and go, well, we think this works and it's not going to hurt and we can afford it. So we'll do it. 
and they do it just in case it does work and then they can always drop it if it doesn't work. Yeah, I suppose so. That's, that's a fair point, actually. If you've got the resources and the money and you know it's not detrimental, and you, even if it's a placebo, it w- if it works, right. works, right? I guess so. Yeah, I've always... Yeah. I've always found that actually interesting, I guess, in some of the top teams and some, some of the stuff they do, you think, oh, I don't know about that. But again, that's right. But if, if we know it's not going to hurt, what's the harm in trying? Exactly. So conversely to um, your coaching and, you know, your approaches and your experience, what are some of the things or maybe we talked about this before, when you've got it wrong or mistakes you've made, what are some of the, if you don't mm-hmm. mind talking about them, perhaps mistakes you've made when programming or coaching and what were they? How did you sort of, I guess, navigate around them? So if you could go back and I guess, speak to your younger self, what's some of the advice that you'd you'd give yourself for some of the younger coaches probably listening and and tuning in? Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, Yeah. Made plenty of mistakes. Um, I think back to my first season of, professional coaching with the footy club and it was just a disaster you know we didn't train enough and uh our loads weren't high enough and players got hurt and you know there were other factors i'm not taking all the blame for it but i'll but i'll Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh yeah so but going into that was and this might sort of get us back to some of the other stuff is um I didn't know what I didn't know. You know, I thought I was, oh, I'm, I'm halfway through a master's. I know a little bit. I can go in here and maybe have a, have a good crack at this. And, you know, six months into the job, I, I realised I didn't have a clue. Um, and, you know, I was learning a lot as I went along. Um, so I'm, these days I'm more, I'm faster to ask a question and, faster to ask for other people's help and you know not to say that I wasn't doing that before but I, I needed to do it more and I think if you ask every young kid in their in their 20s or straight out of uni you know you really think you're the bee's knees and it's um yeah. you know it's it's two years or five years or ten years before you realize that oh actually I'm a bit of an idiot and I, I think I need to ask this person or this person yeah 100% it's um it's true and I, I appreciate it excuse me i appreciate your honesty as well because i think that's the mark of someone who's reached a certain level and that that mindset of you know what i'm gonna make mistakes i'm not gonna go out my way to make them but you know i'm gonna you know balls it up if you like sometimes and asking for help and being um confident enough to ask someone for help and say, look, I'm, I'm not really sure about this. Or for example, maybe I need a bit of help with that rather than just winging it, which I think a lot of, um, in my experience, a lot of young professionals do, because again, you're right. The mindset you come out, you know, you bulletproof. It's that whole like phase you go through anyway, which I think we've all been through. Hold my hands up. something you have. And then sort of need to be taken down a peg or you need to be humbled. Or for example, if you can get some guidance and and some good mentorship, it can be, it can save you a lot of time and frustration and also other people as well of injuries, just getting that sort of scripted advancing way. Hey, look, what you're onto something there really great. Oh, Hey, have you tried this? And I think the way you approach that as well is important. So my next question for you is with, when you're teaching your students, what do you find is some of the most effective approaches in communicating that information? And now to put this in a scenario, for example, I know we've all been there. We're a personal trainer. We're in a gym. 
we see a client or well not a sorry not a client um you know a gym guy doing something not just wrong but dangerous mm -hmm. now right. I, I personally feel obligated as as a as a coach because i think well if i don't step in and i've seen it that's just as negligible as someone you know maybe overdosing or something to a degree especially if it's a yeah. main compound that have you been in that scenario i'm sure you have and how do you approach it um, without, because a lot, I think a lot of trainers are intimidated. Going, no, I, I can't just, especially if it's a maybe uh, um, a stronger gentleman who might be yeah. perhaps you know throwing some weight around, and it's like you might not feel confident. Do you have any advice that you could give to personal trainers of how to maybe approach that and <laughs> sort of offer some better advice without getting your head ripped off? Mate, in that situation, I don't know that I do um, because. Like particularly in the situation you say, if, if they're a big guy and they're throwing some weight around, um, if you're not as big as them, they may not want to hear about it, you know, and I'm, I'm a pretty small guy. So, um, yeah, I've, I, think, um, I think if they don't know you and they don't trust you, it's always going to be really hard to change somebody's opinion about that. So particularly if, if they're... You know, if they're a physique athlete or if they're a power lifter or something like that, a lot of their identity is put into their training, you know, and a lot of sort of how they express themselves and what they think about themselves is related to their training. So it's really hard to tell them that they're doing something wrong mm -hmm. uh, because they're not going to, they're not going to take that well. So you've built a rapport with them already and, you know, we're playing the long game here. So it might take you a couple of months of building a rapport and, you know, getting them to trust you and, you know, you might sort of show them something that they didn't know or, or when you're discussing something, they, you know, they might learn something from you and then they come to you with a question and you've got the answer for them. And then you're like, Hey, I, you know, I noticed something about this. Why are you, why are you lifting that way? Or, you know, has anyone taught you that? Or do you notice how your technique changes when you get tired? Or, um, you know, it's, I don't think you can just walk up to them when it's a part of their identity, you know, because people are really threatened by that and they're going to, they're going to shut it down. Um, so yeah, it's not a satisfactory way of handling it. If it's your gym or your studio, you can just tell them to stop. But um, if you're a PT and you're, you're paying rent somewhere, it's um, yeah, I think you've just got to tread gently. Mm, yeah. And I, I like the point you made about that of identity, which is really important because it is like, the the iron game if you will is a culture um it's, yep. it's it is a way of life i know it's something that i, I love I'll, I'll do it forever and i know there's a, millions of people out there who feel the same way and you do you you identify yourself as or it becomes sometimes who you define yourself as which is not good if it's the whole character because you do need to have some sort of segregation in my opinion, yeah. but you're right. You do. People categorize themselves. You, you say to someone, you know, what's, you know, what, what do you do? Or people will see that you lift and go, what, what do you do? And really it shouldn't have to be that you do anything. If you just enjoy lifting weights, then you, you enjoy lifting weights. But sometimes I think people feel obligated or if they are part of this, like you said, this, um, uh, a group or a collective, it's, you know, no, I'm, I'm a powerlifter and I dress this way. I listen to this music and I, you know, I've got my SPD in these sleeves, which I have. So I love, um, or, you know, it's a, I'm a bodybuilder and it's a shame because I don't know if you've, um, or had to listen to iron culture by, by Eric Helms. Um, 
and they talk about the, the, the culture of, you know, physique sports and, and strength and conditioning and how we are, we're segregated, but really we're all part of the same family. So I think yeah. going back to the question, it's, it yeah. is, it's, it, I think that's good advice. Tread carefully because you might have to find an in somewhere else by later on, like you said, just saying it might even be just hello. Hello turns into a conversation at the front desk, turns into a conversation on the gym floor, turns into a, hey, have you tried this? Or I know you're into lifting. Have you, have you tried the low bar squat or, or, or whatever it might be? I know that when I was young and uh, <laughs> very um, uh, full of energy, uh, I always found it hard because, you know, I wanted to go and be like, oh, no, don't, don't do that. But that's the worst thing you can do is say, oh, don't do that. Or don't do, do it this way. And it, I actually spoke to, it was a, an older personal trainer at the time in the first gym in New Zealand where I trained. And she said, if you want to approach someone, if, and if you do feel confident, always say, hey, I noticed you were doing this. That's great. Mm -hmm. Have you tried by any chance trying it this way? Because I found, and then use a third person or use some actual anecdotal um, evidence. And, uh, you know, it sounds really simple, but I never thought of that. And to this day, if I do approach someone, I generally introduce myself and we'll have that line of general, like you said, like inquiry, like inquisitiveness, like I'm just interested and I want to help you. Have you offer a, not a solution, but an alternative, which in your head may be the solution. Um, but you're just giving them again, a possible, oh yeah, without hey, you're doing it wrong. Because like you said, you might, you might offend someone and, and that's not what we want, want to do in this game. But I, I think sometimes what we do is as much uh, um, being a good communicator as it is a coach as, as well um, right. in many ways. When, um, I guess, with, with, with your students in terms of when you're in the gym environment with them. Now, I imagine you have a variety of, of age groups. Am I right? Yeah, we have as young as 16 and as old as sometimes 65. Yeah. Well, oh, wow. So you, that's, that's pretty cool that you're still getting uh, people through at, at any age. Because, well, it's never too late, right? Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you find that there's a bit of a segregation in terms of uh, the younger and the older in terms of learning, where the misconception of if you're a little bit older, you can general, generally grasp it a bit faster um, based on your experience? Or do you think that it just comes down to the attitude um, of the individual that's that's learning that you're coaching yeah I, I think it's really different because we get you know we get some students that are there because they don't know what else to do and fitness sounded kind of easy or interesting mm -hmm. um we get other people who it's a it's a lifelong passion and a, and something that they want to turn into a vocation so um sometimes it's really hard to change some of those entrenched views but um again if that older person comes from say other education and they've done qualifications somewhere else, like they've got a degree in something and then they're coming back for more study. They get, they're wonderful just because they're, they're curious you know, and they want to learn and they, they're, they're really, they're just sponges, you know? So, um, but you know, some of the younger kids are too, but others aren't. So I actually asked my kids last, um, the graduating group last year and um, you know, we actually, you know, I surveyed them on a couple of things and asked them, um, some questions that I'd ask them in week one of the of the year and then ask them at the end of the year and sort of saw what the difference was and um, 
And then I asked them, right, so how much do you reckon you know now if you have to rate yourself in the fitness industry? You know, how much do you know compared to the next person? And they're like, oh, a little bit, not much. You know, um, I'm okay, I guess. And then my next question was, how much did you think you knew when you rocked up in the first week? And the, you know, the, the boys particularly were, oh, I knew everything, or I thought I knew everything. Um, right, how much do you actually know? No, I was an idiot. I didn't know anything. Um, so I, I really loved seeing that, like just that they, that they appreciated that. And they knew, you know, they knew so much more, but they weren't less confident, I guess, but they were more aware of their limitations and more aware of what other people could do to help them. And I think that's, that's great and that's really important. I think yeah. I've wandered off the question there, but. No, no I'm glad you did because that's, I think that's, um, thanks for sharing. That's really good information because it shows that the mindset and the change and the growth that they've gone through to go, not only to admit it, but been like, oh, actually there was, I didn't really know that much at all. Um, but you, again, right. you don't know what you don't know until you do it. And then it's, again, it's about that awareness, right? It's like, oh, <laughs> and now I'm uh, consciously incompetent. <laughs> uh, and then hopefully, you know, I can move on to the next stages and, and so forth. So right. to kind of springboard off that question, mm -hmm. it sounds to me like coaching or, or teaching, I should say, has made you a better coach, a better communicator, a better trainer. Um, if you would agree with that, how do you think it has mainly improved your ability as a, as a trainer by teaching other trainers, if you will, in the industry? Yeah, um, I, I don't know. It's, uh, I'm probably happy to take it slower. And um, one of the approaches I use a lot now is getting people to tell me what they know, you know rather than me telling them what they know. So I really like to draw attention to what the gaps in the knowledge are. And when we look at correcting misconceptions, that's, that's a really effective approach rather than saying, no, you're wrong. It's actually this. Um, it's more, okay, so oh, what, what do you know? Or what do you think about that? Now, how do you know? Or why do you think that? And get them to try and explain a bit. And if they can't, well, okay, so you've explained this bit, but what about this bit here? And, oh, I, I don't know. I'm not sure. I, I heard somewhere where'd you hear it from? I, I don't know. Or I read it online. I'm like, oh, well, what did the guy online know? Well, I don't know. So, you know, once you identify where the gaps are and it may not be everything's wrong, it might just be, you know, they're okay with this, but they're not so good with this. And, mm. you know, you identify that gap and then you can guide them to an answer, you know, give the information that you, that you need to. Um, and then sort of help them if they're curious enough, they'll, they'll sort of pick it up from there. Um, and dealing with, clients it's it's the same thing now i'm i'm asking okay where where'd you hear that and or or how do you know and and what do you think that means for you, for your training and then have you considered this and oh no i haven't what should i do instead i'm like well okay and then you can jump in and and give them give them a, a bit of extra information but again it's a it's a long game and it you know, takes a bit of patience and takes a bit of a bit of conversation i guess Mm, yeah, but it's good though because you're almost empowering empowering the other person to, you like you said, guiding them towards a solution rather than just that whole, here, let me give you the answer or do it this way or this is the this is the way. You're better. The only the only thing I'd suggest there, sorry, um, is that requires both parties to be engaged too. So now I'm saying this is a best case scenario. There's plenty of times when I just have to tell somebody no, particularly a student. You know, I've got to say no. You've got to do this. And, oh, well, I think it's this. Oh, I'm sorry, it's not. 
and here's why. And if you don't agree, that's fine. But here's here's what you have to do. So yeah, if if they can't engage, you 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 can't make them engage. Yeah, for sure. It take, I think it takes a certain level of thinking um, to to guide and lead someone to um, come up to their own conclusions. I know I'm I'm just thinking when you when you're talking of scenarios that that's happened to me and I had one uh, teacher at in particular, and I thought he was just being really hard on me and like almost picking on me because I'm like, why are you always making so hard for me? And he literally, yeah. I, remember I did a presentation on creatine on a hydrate and he just destroyed me in front of the class, like in a good way. Like he just yeah. kept asking me these questions and I was, <laughs> I was stood there and I couldn't really give him the answers because yeah. as a, a sports scientist, it's important for us to not have a bias approach and right. what I had done is because I knew creatine or, you know, had evidence behind it, I was biased towards it. And he was teaching yeah. me that, you know, you've got to, um, your, your job here or in this particular assignment was to show the findings for and against, um, right. present the evidence as a whole, um, yeah. where he said, you know, you, you were kind of for creatine. It was very obvious. And he just asked me some, like you, which I think is really good, you know, why did you come to that conclusion? Where did you find that? And, this, and I just thought he was being rough. But, you know, he pulled me aside afterwards and he said, look, I'm doing this for your own benefit. And I think now, and looking back on, on you know, the studies in the class, I'm, gl I'm glad he did that. And, you know, he made me a better student. He made me ask better questions. He made me you know, reference things a whole lot better and make sure that I wasn't just plucking things out of the air, which, you know, we're all guilty of once again. But I look at um, a lot of my fellow students and there's only two of us who successfully work in the industry now. And I think maybe if I didn't turn up and apply myself and when I thought a lot of the tutors were being hard on me, maybe it's because I was always the one asking questions or, you know, turning up and they were like oh this person is obviously interested and they just nailed me <laughs> but it was a good thing so I, I like that then i like that approach i think it's important to kind of uh i guess be cruel to be kind sometimes or if you if you yeah. can spend that time and and uh make people think a little bit more which i think is important absolutely absolutely couldn't agree more yeah, no, that that's fantastic. And um, there was something I wanted to. Oh, yeah. So when we when we had a chat off camera um, before we started, we talked about the ask a better question, and you said something that I really enjoyed. The answer is it depends a lot of the time. So when someone asks you something, and you know we we can't, you know, and a lot of people will be nodding their head now listening to this. Someone goes, "Hey, what's the best? This? What's the best exercise to build strength?" and uh <laughs> well can you tell me more like what do you do uh is this the same technique you employ when you get these questions when you can engage with someone by saying okay can you tell me more or how do you get your students to ask better questions or how do you get your athletes and clients to ask better questions or and how do you educate them so they can start again learning themselves and, and sort of drawing their own conclusions rather than again, looking for that magic pill or again, the, the binary one dimensional approach, which we, we talked about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't think, um, I don't think you can create curiosity in, or you can, it's rare to create curiosity in somebody who's not curious. So, um, if that, if that exists beforehand, then great. You know, if they, if they want to learn fantastic, if they don't, it can be a real challenge, but 
um, yeah, the um, the early answer, you know, early on in a course or with limited levels of knowledge is, yeah, it's got to be like this. Um, and if you're not doing it like this, you're doing it wrong. Um, but, you know, uh, again, asking questions, poking holes in that, like, well, what about in this situation? Or what about with this type of person? What would you do differently then? Um, one thing I really love talking about is, um, is squat technique. And now not because I'm a master of squat technique or I'm a better coach than any, anyone else, but because some of the recent research is just showing that it's so variable and there are so many different ways people might squat depending on anatomy and depending on, um, you know, mobility and depending on, you know, their movement competency and other injury issues and things like that. So you might end up coming with, with a group of 10 people, you might have six or seven different variations of how somebody squats or just the way they move. Mm. Um, and just drawing attention to those differences. So like, you know, like, Hey, have a look at how short this person's Achilles tendon is or have a look at how tight this person's glutes are, or have a look at how long this person's femur is, or have a look at how stiff this person's back is, and, or have a look at how much this person shakes and the valgus knee, and you, know, you look at all those different issues and you're gonna get a different squat compared mm. to the person next to you. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so identifying the complexity, and then now what would you do about it, guys? And usually the answers are pretty mixed. You, know, you get some good ones and some bad ones, but you, know, you just you just get them thinking about it, um, and you know if if I need to, I can point to some research. So I know um, part of Mark McKean's PhD um, was looking at um, squat mechanics, and he summarised his his whole study up with if it looks good, it probably is, mm. and and if it I like looks that good, yeah. simple, it, it's so simple, and it was a great talk. I I saw him talk about ten years ago, and I've I've remembered it ever since because mm. it was such a sharp, snappy way to summarize that research um, and some of the research on back pain at the moment um, by uh, Peter O'Sullivan at Curtin University does a lot of stuff on that and looking at the movements that injure people's backs and we now know well, it's not the movement so much it's, it's the load so somebody could deadlift badly but if they're using a light enough weight or they're strong enough to deadlift badly it's probably okay and if they're not strong enough that's when they're going to get injured so um, yeah highlight the complexity, highlight the differences, talk about why, talk about how you can fix it. Um, but some of this is in the eye of the beholder as well. So there's a little bit of um, subjective opinion that we need to be aware of as well, I think, in some of that stuff. Yeah, no, sure. And uh, you're right. I think certain people are just, again, curious or ask better questions or, again, we all sure. think differently. I think, yes. um, yeah, some people will... Uh, gravitate and change and coagulate over time but for the most part like you said you will always get you know that one person who's always got that hand up or is always a bit more inquisitive uh, which again is, is part of the challenge but I like what you were talking about then with the studies in terms of that keeping it simple and mm. this is something uh, I've, I've, I've really struggled with with my whole life is keeping things simple and not overthinking and not overcomplicating and even I just think the way my mind works is, you know, second guessing it or going, oh, it needs to be more advanced. And, and to give a realized example for, for people listening, and I'm going to get your opinion on this in a second. Yep. When I came out of studying and I went in my first personal training position, which was in New Zealand in the, in, in like the, the bodybuilding gym or the most serious gym. And I've written this uh, program up for this uh, client. And I remember the, the client leaving the gym because they went sick 
and the my boss at the time who was uh was it was ex sas and he strength and conditioning coach he had a lot of experience and uh, he came up to me he goes oh alex he goes i just saw your client run out the gym and i said oh yeah i was wondering where they went he went oh they they were a bit put off they went sick and then he's like well, what did you do with them and anyway long story short i'd given them something that was for a lot of a higher level or an athlete because i took directly from my studies even though i'd I'd done the, the practical, but I'd not had the key element of experience. <laughs> um, and I was still, you know, just getting a bit of guidance. And yeah, he just said, oh, you know, like you, you actually don't have to make it that complicated, especially for general population or, you know, the clientele we have here. He says, most of these people are not physique athletes or they're not going to be, you know, <laughs> at, at the top of their game. So he says, you can, and, and it took him to show me how simple, and I said, oh, well, that's boring. And he went, yeah, he goes, it, it can be, he says, but this is good learning for you to, to learn this and then you can progress and this is where you might find you want to work with sports teams or you might want to work with elite athletes, etc. So um, what, uh, in, in terms of how you coach and from your experience of teaching, how important is it to try and keep things simple? And what are some of the things you can do, again, for coaches and personal trainers upcoming to try and keep things simple or what, you know, what, tools can you apply to not overthink if any in your opinion yeah absolutely well i think um separating yourself from the client's really important so what's what's simple and boring to us might be quite a challenge to the client mm. um or, or the athlete depending on their training history so you know we might have seen you know we might have seen a goblet squat for 10 years and we're sick to death of them but for somebody who's never done it and for somebody who's learning and building strength and needs to control their body better like that's that's just the exercise for them you know so you know we don't have to do um you know we don't have to do supersets or cluster sets or drop sets or use bands or chains or anything like that if it's not if it's not needed you know so yeah. we're just um yeah i just remember we're trying to apply a stimulus to get a re response you know and let's let's apply good stimulus like apply enough but not too much right. um and when our client adapts to that stimulus then we change it you know and then we might do something interesting so for me it was always the second and third program that was much more fun than the first program because mm -hmm. you see how they've changed mm -hmm. and that's when start getting interesting or yeah. when somebody's got 12 months under their belt and you can throw in something really good straight away and they just get it mm -hmm. you know so th that's a lot of fun but like all jobs you know um 80% of it, 90% of it is sort of the, the stock standard, you know, you, you've got a brand new weight loss client or um, you're writing a program for somebody who's a first timer and the other 10% is the stuff that's really interesting and fun. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. Very true. I like what you said about then, like you said, separating it because you can go, well, I've seen this, but then, well, if it's relevant for the client, <clears throat> like you said, that's it's, right. and it is, this is the best procedure and, and proceed on and, like you said, that progression should always be there, which is maybe where we have to focus on some more of the details in terms of, well, yep. it is progressing. It is exciting, especially when you can see that client actually evolve. But I agree mm. with what you're saying in terms of like second and third programs, you know, all by mm. that someone is adherent to it. Um, when you see that and then they, they, you see the change sometimes in mindset as well, which is nice. And then I think that's part of the, the best feeling uh, we can get as trainers and coaches because seeing someone change 
you know, mentally and physically for the better is very rewarding um, because it's That's like right. clean a room. You can see what you've done. You go, ah, yes. I see it. but with training, it takes a little longer than a couple of hours. <laughs> I actually really like the point you made earlier. Um, You've made it a while ago about having the end point in mind, you know, knowing where they're starting from, knowing where you want to get to. Yeah. And with, with progressing your programming, it can be the same thing. And I've done this in a really complicated way when I'm working with the team and I'm periodizing and we have every session for three months planned out, you know, before the preseason starts yeah. or also done it with some of the guys I'm working with at the moment where, well, I know where they want to be or I know where I want them at the start of the season. I know what they're capable of doing now. Next month, we're going to change this. Next month, our rep range is going to drop a little bit. Next month, we're going to introduce a little more power or we're going to vary this position a little bit or I'm going to add a band to this movement. You know, so you don't, it can be relatively unstructured like that or it can be a massive spreadsheet that you spend days working on if, if you need to. Um, but yeah, just, um, just be, be progressive and, and be sensible. Yeah, no, that's a good point. It's like that you, you re-raise like starting with the end point in mind and sometimes like you said, reverse engineering it like any goal, working backwards, you go, right, well, if we need to be here, well, first of all, is it possible? Yeah, okay, so then what do we need to do? And then sort of programming um, accordingly. I find something that I try and do with my clients is, and, and I had a, actually a new client ring me up before we were on the call and you know, I, I try to set expectations. I think this is important for any professional to let people know what is going to happen before it happens and mm -hmm. then educating them because yeah. people come to us and I'm, I'm sure you, you've had this and they go, you go, Hey, look, first of all, how can I help you? You know, and they're like, I want to lose 10 kilograms of fat in like 10 weeks and I want to gain 12 kilos of muscle and I'm exaggerating. But, well, some people yeah. And Something. you go, okay, great. And uh, <laughs> it's like, okay, let, let, let's just first have a chat about what's possible because th th this is the going back to again what we said off camera we've got black, we've got white, we've got gray. This is a gray area. What, mm. how fast can we gain muscle? How fast can we lose fat? But they're not how fast, but what is optimum? And I use air quotes for people listening because, you know, that is what is what is optimum at the end of the day. Sometimes the best program or the best way is whatever you can stick to, whether that's a slower rate or a faster rate. Um, but there, there obviously, again, we, we, we've got studies. We kind of know timeframes and obviously we can accumulate and lose fat faster than we can assimilate, you know, muscle just purely based on its genetic makeup, etc. But again, if you don't explain this to someone who has come to you going, no, 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 but I'm, I'm going to pay you money to, to help me get this result. Mm. You're kind of doing them and yourself a disservice. And that comes back to the whole question of, again, asking, um, sorry, not asking a better question, but mm. I'm saying it depends and, and then setting expectations as well. What yeah. sort of, again, when you've been or had the time to with your clients, have you found that, trying to establish the knowledge as you progress along through the program is, has helped them? Um, or sometimes are you just very, depending on the person, look, this is, this is what we've got to do. This is, this is how we're going to do it. Or do you try and kind of spend that uh, bit of time, um, I guess, ed educating them so that they are, again, they know the whys behind what they're doing rather than, you know, the misconceptions because yeah. 
a lot of people come and go, well, I've obviously got to do cardio. And you go, well, not necessarily. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, uh, back when I first started doing PT, I probably wanted to educate everybody, but not everyone wants educating. You know, some people just want to train and be told what to do. And for other people, it's, it's a part of their week that even if they don't achieve their goal, they're going to stick with you for years and years because they enjoy it and they get something else out of it. Mm. Even if their goal sort of gets forgotten or falls by the wayside. So, you know, appreciate those people. Um, and then um, I think a good business strategy and a good programming strategy is under promise, you know, always. So, yeah. you know, whatever you can achieve, just knock 20 or 30% off that and tell them that, you know, so yeah. That way, you know, you're not going to disappoint them if they don't quite get there. But, gee, you're going to look good if they do, you know, and if they get there ahead of schedule. So, um, and if they want, to be honest, if they want to go to somebody else who's going to promise the world, let them go. Because they're either going to get disappointed when I tell them it can't happen or they're going to get disappointed when it doesn't happen. Mm. So, either way, you don't have a long-term client. Mm. That's true. That's some... That's some really good points that you make there as well again from your experience and i want to um sort of extend that because recently i had a conversation um with a fellow coach this morning about some inferences that i've gauged from you know working with people over my time mm-hmm. and the biggest thing is i found is that the only i mean like anything we are the only people who get in our own way but most people can't string two weeks together Yes. In terms of there are the, you know, we look, it's simple, right? It's sleep, it's nutritionist training at the very generalized sort of zoomed out look. Yep. What what's the hard bit? This. It's life. It's not it's not as easy as turning up and getting asleep and eating, because if it was everyone would be looking phenomenal. But what I right. found is even when you provide that information, I'm finding that with, with the coaching, a lot of it is, again, giving people these simple processes and procedures, systems and strategies to be able to actually do the basics. And sometimes it's six weeks or six months before I even get them doing something which is, you know, more congruent with actually now we're actually making progress just because you have to build these. And I think I use the word keystone habits is what I would say because they don't have them in there. Um, but it's amazing just to look back and go, wow, like it's so easy, but most people are just getting sick from what, yep. what you know, drinking or they're just not looking at, they're just not doing the basics. Like, and maybe this is a bit of frustration coming through from me as a young coach. <laughs> and I'm like, look, if you could only see how simple it is and it, it, you just got to turn up. <laughs> but but yeah. I guess it's different when you, when you love it is, you know, is, is this something that you've experienced, um, and, and if so, what's, what's your thoughts on that? Do you have any tips, advice? Because I'm sure there's a whole lot of people listening who are coaches and trainers going, yes, you know, how do we motivate our clients? And I, I like to put the onus back on myself. Now, I know at the end of the day, yeah, at some point, your client's got to come to the party, right? But I try to take ownership and go, no, how can I be a better coach? How can I you know, mm-hmm. talk to Jim, to Joe, to Catherine and, and get it across in a way where maybe they'll get it? Because I know... Maybe I can. Maybe I, maybe I can say it in a different way and maybe they'll click. And I know it's definitely worked. But then how do you know when maybe you have to have that conversation of, hey, look, do you really want to do this? I don't know if it's working. What are your thoughts? Absolutely. Well, it's, yeah, it's like I say, life gets in the way, you know, um, all the time. So 
and I've been on the other side of this, I think back to when I was a sports person and, you know, the mistakes I made in my twenties compared or in my early twenties compared to how hard I trained and how right I did it in my late twenties. It was, you know, it, they're just different worlds and it's, you know, I was the same person just at a different stage of my life. And, you know, when I was 29, 30 and in, at the end of my career, I was asking for help. You know, I was, I was seeing my dietitian, I was seeing my physio, I was sleeping properly. I was, you know, laid off the booze and all that sort of stuff. And I did everything the opposite way in my early twenties, you know, so, um, which a lot of people do. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and I see that in, in my clients and in, you know, athletes I work with as well. And, um, sometimes you just got to let people make their mistakes. You know, you can tell them, but until they experience it, it doesn't always sink in. You know, it's, um, in, in psychology, we talk about the, the availability bias, you know, like where something's more important to us when it happens to us rather than when somebody else is telling us about it. So I can tell you that you need to monitor your training load and not do too much too soon, but until you get hurt, you're not going to pay attention. Um, and this, this happened to somebody the other day, um, you know, a, a really good football player I'm working with. She's, you know, she's wonderful and she's a great client. I, I really love working with her, but, um, she's got a she's history of knee injuries and hamstring problems and things like that. And um, she we started training and we're a little conservative and she had an opportunity to do some more training and she went and did it and did tons of plyos and sled pushes and things like that. And she, she got hurt. And, you know, um, then she had to see a physio. Physio told her exactly what I'd been telling her, which is, oh, you did too much and you should have stuck with this. And it's, it's great. She's hearing it in, in both ears from the physio on one ear and, and me in the other ear. And she came in to see me the other day and I'm like, so you're going to pay attention now, aren't you? She's like, sure will. Um, and yeah, we could have stopped that from happening. But on the other hand, now she, she really appreciates training loads and that you can't spike your loads. And I don't have to explain that ever again. So um, it doesn't solve the problem, you know, like that had to happen, but sometimes it, it has to, because that is far more meaningful to her than any link I can provide or any study I can talk about or any spreadsheet I can send. Sure. So I guess like, it's like, you just got to sometimes learn the hard way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Everyone does. Yeah. Yeah. I guess at some point or another, I guess we've all been there, you know, as yeah. hard as it is, like you said, and it's not like a, it's not like, oh, I told you so, but I've actually, it's funny you say that. I'll be honest with you, Dan, I've dead same client messaged me this morning, loves, he's so motivated. And I said, look, just let's, we've got to build up this volume. Okay. I've explained right. it all. And, and he, 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 but I see him there and he's re, he gets really like, oh, I can do that. I've got to get, and I'm like, no, 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 it's not about being hardcore. It's not about, you know, but I love his energy. And I said, look, I love you. Use this. I said, but be patient. You know, time moves yeah. fast, but same thing. You know, he's yeah. put too much weight on the bar. He's done some RDLs and he's pulled his load back. And he's like, dude, I can't train now. I said, you can't, you can't do the one thing that you love, right? Yeah. And he goes, I should have backed off, shouldn't I? Like you told me to. I said, yes. I said, the weight will come. Strength is a skill. <laughs> Raw strength will get you so far. And then you mm -hmm. just have to, again, hence the name strength and conditioning, condition the body over time to the loads. But right. now he gets it. And I bet you, just like your example there with the female athlete, he'll, well, I hope he won't do that again for a long time right. or ever yes. <laughs> because that's a hard lesson because he's not been able to train for a week and he loves it. So I said, you know, 
listen and again the physio sort of backed me up so funny you mentioned that it's ironic it's a similar similar solution but yeah it's um it's definitely something we've uh man if we could only avoid that but maybe not a bad thing not a bad thing um dan before my final question and before we wrap yeah. things up i wanted to ask you some what i call rapid fire questions just some fun lighthearted questions shows a bit of a human element and uh, again it's, it's just a bit of fun at the end of the day so just answer as honestly as you can, whatever comes to mind. Uh, um, yeah, uh, there's no right or wrong. Uh, okay, so the first one is uh, if you had one last meal or you had to eat one meal for the rest of your life, what would it be? What's your favorite? Oh, chicken curry. Yeah? Yeah. Nice. Korma? Uh, no, Thai. Thai? Ah, yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Good choice, good choice. Very popular the old Thai around these parts now as well. Yeah, very all right, if you had a superpower or you could choose a superpower, what would it be and why? Uh, time travel. I'll go back and correct all my training mistakes from when I was a young kid in my 20s. <laughs> yeah, that'd be, that'd be nice. That'd be tempting the time travel, just to dabble in and out, etc. Absolutely. Um, a little bit of a heavier one. Mm. Do you think we go anywhere after we die? Do you think there's been, again more of a scientist approach. Do you think there's anything after the body stops breathing, switches off? Is there anything else? Well, I'll say there's no evidence that there is. <laughs> That's true. This is very true. And conversely, if you could choose to live forever, would you? No, not because then you'll lose any appreciation of what you had. Yeah. And I think that's a, an appropriate answer, definitely. And it's definitely interesting how people have different uh, opinions on that one because it makes yeah. you think sometimes, you go, oh, I don't know. But like you said, would life be precious? Would we, would we value time? Would we value each other? Yeah, that's right. Do we even do that enough now? <laughs> yeah. Debatable. Debatable. Big question. Yeah. It is. It is. And, um, and my last question down on a more serious note is, and this is one I ask all my guests, and it's identifying uh, or a fear and sharing a fear that you've had. It might be a major fear, some um, adversity you've faced within your, your career. Um, what was it or what was one of those times or a major fear that you had and how did you overcome it and what did you learn from it by overcoming okay. that fear? Yeah, um, I think, uh, oh, look, I'll, I'll stay on topic, I think, and something that, really bothered me when I was younger was just being wrong, like just so afraid of being wrong. And I still am, well, I'm not afraid of it now. I, I worry about it. Like I make sure I'm right. And I want to, I want to know that I'm not wrong, but you know, I'm, I'm okay with being wrong. Cause as I mentioned earlier, it's, um, you know, being wrong is an opportunity to, to be more right and an opportunity to learn more. And I'd rather be wrong knowing that I then got it right than, just you know refuse to accept it you know or or try and backpedal or try and hide my mistake or something like that and that's something that only comes with time and maturity and i guess realizing that well if you're wrong it's okay and everyone's wrong and you know if you've been doing something for 20 years you can still be wrong you're just going to be wrong in different ways so um yeah i think that was the biggest thing is just being okay with being wrong and I guess using it as an opportunity and just trying to get better rather than trying to hide and pretend, Oh no, I'm okay. I'm on top of everything when sometimes you're not. And yeah, that, that took a while. 
It's all that. Yeah, no, that, I, that's an important point you make, and I think that's going to be great for people listening, especially like the young, younger listeners and or people in the early on in the career. That it's actually okay. And I know you referenced this earlier when we had a chat. Like being wrong is it's not bad. It's how you learn, but embrace like it's going to happen at some point. So if you can just embrace it, hold your hands up. Yeah, sometimes it's not the best feeling. Um, yep. but you generally are better off because you learn something. So I like how you kind of reframe that and, and have the positive mindset, which is really good. Yep. Um, Dan, for, for people who perhaps want to follow, read your blogs, learn a little bit more about you, where's the best place to find uh, your resources? Or I don't know if you're, you're big on social media or yeah, where, where, where can people find out more about what you do and you? Yep. Okay, absolutely. Um, so at the moment, what I'm doing is taking some of the research that I've done and tried to put together a, um, a resource to improve um, critical thinking skills in personal trainers. We um, you know, wandered off topic a little bit there, but which is great. I really enjoyed the chat, but it's improving somebody's ability to be aware of their own knowledge, which we have mentioned, but then also the skills to correct it. So where to get the right information from and um, so how to assess that information and what we can rely on and what we can't and or how much doubt we should have about something like those are skills that you don't learn in a in a certificate three and four in fitness mm -hmm. and to be honest something that they touch on in a degree but you don't get a lot of it until you know higher levels of study even where you you really start to get a grasp of what's really known and what's you know just a, we think we know but we're not sure so I'm trying to develop some of that in personal training. So um, there's a website I've put together called um, criticalfitness.com.au mm -hmm. where um, people can find um, yeah, a couple of blog posts I've written there. Um, and that's going to be growing over time. I'm going to add some bits and pieces from the thesis and um, uh, comment on some sort of current fitness events um, as, that, as they occur. Mm -hmm. So people can go there. Um, or people can also, um, on Facebook, uh, look for criticalfitness.edu um and um like that page and they'll get updates about um when articles are posted or when something happens in the news and i think it's worth talking about yeah no no great stuff and, and i'll uh, be sure to link those in the uh, description below as well so for people who are listening you want to follow those and, and follow along with what you're doing they certainly can i think it'd I'd be doing myself a disservice if i didn't ask this last question purely because i get asked this question a lot which is where do you find this good knowledge? What, what, what are good resources, et cetera? Now, based on your experience, where do you, or where would you recommend people go perhaps to find reliable sources of information specific to our industry? Uh, and that might be, you know, blog articles like what you produce yourself. It might be um, educators, tertiary educations in Australia. What are yep. some of the recommendations that, that you'd give resource-wise? Absolutely. Um, well, for I can um, I'll talk about nutrition first because I think that's a real really easy one. And ignoring um, sort of competition stuff for for the meantime, for ninety five percent of your clients, the the Australian Dietary Guidelines and the Eat for Health website is the best website and the best resource you can come across. I think um, a lot of the people who are critical of that stuff for the general population maybe aren't as familiar with it as they could be. Um, but there's so much good evidence that's talked about in in that document and it's a good read it's it's big but um yeah i've learned i've learned more reading that than i have you know um about nutrition from any other source for for the general public um so for trainers that's where i'd be going for nutrition stuff um for exercise stuff i would 
I'd get a good textbook. Um, I really like um, Greg Haff's um, Encyclopedia of Strength and Conditioning. Um, I think is a is a great one. Um, any any like university level um, exercise physiology textbook is going to be fine as well. Mm -hmm. um, the online resources, I I think they're just so variable. So I'm really avoiding commenting on any of those because yeah. you don't know. Like a, a PT may not have the skills to break down research well. So. Um, you can go to the original research, but are you interpreting it properly? Do you understand what the statistics mean? Do you understand what the methodology is? If you don't, don't use it. You know, look for people who can interpret that for you. And you know, um, and a, a good, well-developed textbook is going to be a really good start. Um, if somebody's simplifying that stuff and they've got that background, like an academic qualification, and can interpret that research, um, and there's a there's an online source that um, that works for you, go for it. But well, yeah, I don't have one that I recommend off the top of my head. For sure, for sure. And that's understandable because like you said, it is so uh, varying these days with um, that many resources. I think, think people are overwhelmed, but I'm glad you mentioned those basics. Like again, going back to the sources, the textbooks, et cetera. You can't really go wrong with that stuff because it's not been tainted. And again, it's all just like a, it's like a dictionary. It's like, this is the facts. You can argue with it, but it's not wrong because <laughs> it's, exactly. it's like the basic principle. So you know, I think you're safe and, and right in those recommendations. And maybe even that in itself will give people an idea of, oh, I perhaps should be a little bit more cautious about all the glossy, you know, websites, magazine, blogs, personal trainers. Take everything with a grain of salt. Sometimes there's some good information. But like you said, it's about learning how to assess, analyze, break that down, interpret it. Um, and then perhaps like you said as well, have that critical thinking and being able to go, okay, that's probably not quite right, but there is some truth in that, which, that's right. which takes time. So, um, Dan, thank you again for your time. Thank you for sharing your, your knowledge with us. Thank you for sharing some of what you do, etc. Once again, for anyone who wants to follow along with what Dan's doing a little bit more, follow the links in the description below and until next time. And as always guys, stay fearless. Thank you.